welcome to Borderless Sustainability, where we explore the diverse relationship between people, planet, and profit, discover how language, geography, and culture impact sustainability, and ultimately aim to create change through knowledge. My name is Elisa Rivera. And my name is Miguel Fraga. In today's episode, we will be talking to Dr. Danielle Grunin about how to monitor the Earth's health using NASA satellite data and research. We will also be discussing how civilians can become or have become active in atmospheric science sustainable practices. Dr. Danielle Grunin is a research scientist with the University of Alabama Huntsville, working on NASA Impact Project. Prior to this, she worked on mission data documentation and science outreach within the Atmospheric Science Data Center, ASDC, at the NASA Langley Research Center. In 2019, she graduated from Florida State University with the PhD in Metaphorology. Dr. Grunin's PhD dissertation was related to diagnosing Central American rainfall patterns and determining the, the dynamics involved in triggering the onset and demise of the rainy season. Welcome, Dr. Grunin. We are very excited to get to learn more about the NASA data uh, and how it's used to monitor the Earth's health. And you know, before we get into the nuts and bolts of your research, I would like to ask you, what made you start becoming more environmentally conscious? Thank you, Elisa and Miguel for having me. Um, I started to become more environmentally conscious probably the, the first time I was in grad school at UC Davis in 2008. My roommate at the time was very much into recycling and taught me how important recycling is. At that time, I was skeptical whether an individual could actually um, impact or reverse climate change by recycling or you know, how that would impact the effects of global warming. So um, I started asking questions and doing research and I had a bachelor's degree in physics and decided to pursue a master's in atmospheric science or meteorology because I wanted to do something that would impact people's everyday lives. Um, so that kind of started it. And then um, while I was studying and getting my master's, I volunteered at a climate change 101 seminar in Sacramento. And this was basically organized by UC Davis, um, where leading climate scientists gave a lunchtime seminar about the basics of climate change science. And, you know, California really is a leader of, of climate change science. And I sat in on these lunchtime seminars and learned so much about climate change, but also how complicated <laughs> climate change is. And so that kind of gave me the, the inspiration that, you know, hey, this is really interesting, but it's complicated, not only to, to understand and study, but also to communicate that with, with others. So that was kind of what really started it. Wow, that, yeah, okay. That's similar to, I feel like Miguel's a nice story, how we started back in college. Um, that's very interesting. And I, uh, to follow up, with um, your research, um, just a general question. How are satellites used to monitor the Earth's health? How have you used them so far? So a lot of people think of NASA and they think of space exploration and satellites going to, you know, far reaches of our solar system and beyond. But um, NASA has a lot of Earth observing satellites and these orbit the Earth in different ways. like geostationary satellites, which just stay in one place and scan the earth and kind of follow the earth as it rotates, or sun synchronous satellites, which orbit from north to south. 
and cross the equator multiple times um, a day. But satellites really measure, they can measure seen and unseen quantities. Um, they can measure things in all different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. We can look at different time frames based on you know where the satellite is and and how it's orbiting. And um, I also like to say that satellites are kind of like a doctor's stethoscope. You know how a doctor's <laughs> stethoscope, you know, measures a person's heartbeat and makes sure their heart is beating healthy and every and the lungs sound good. That's kind of what satellites are. They monitor the Earth's vital signs. They can measure things like the global temperature and um, detect changes in uh, the Earth's gravitational field, for example. So I like to say that, that satellites really are kind of helping us monitor the Earth's health, health, but then also helping us figure out how that environment's impacting human health as well. So I, I've researched a little bit about your current work and the past work that you've worked on. And I think it's very important for our listeners to get a little feel for uh, what it is that you've done, right? So my question is, where and how can people download the, the information that NASA is putting out there for NASA Earth Science data? So people can download um, data. The easiest way to download NASA Earth Science data is to go to NASA Earth Data Search, which is basically like the Google of earth science data. And um, that website is search.earthdata.nasa.gov. And in order to do that, um, it, all the NASA data is free and open to the public. However, they do require you to have a login. So what's called an earth data login. And that's basically your email address and a password to download and access the data. And this is basically so that NASA can um, take metrics on how their data is, not how their data, but how much of their data is being downloaded or used. Um, and I wanted to just add that you can download the data, but NASA has a lot of resources to help figure out how to manipulate the data. Like they've got a lot of these data recipes and tutorials and uh, NASA Earth Data also has a YouTube channel, which has webinars on there that is just great. Um, you know, half the battle with, with dealing with NASA Earth Science data is NASA's famous for its acronyms and its <laughs> crazy lingo. And so you kind of, there's a bit of a learning curve with learning what the NASA terminology is. And then once you have that, it makes it a lot easier to deal with the data because you kind of know what you're looking for. Right. And and now that you, uh, we're talking about all of this data and data, um, I'm not a data scientist and I'm a very visual person. Mm -hmm. And I've seen everyone talk, especially for climate change, about data, how data is important. And, and I understand how data is important. But using this um, data that you're talking about from the satellites, how do you visualize the satellite data? Like, how does that look? Like, when you say satellite data, I only think about binary numbers and all yeah. that. But <laughs> how, how do you visualize that? How, what's an, an example? Of that? So it's not easy to visualize the satellite data straight from the download because like you said it's usually in um, some maybe some kind of binary format. Usually it's 
transformed into something by the science team and then like the data centers release that to the public. Um, but there are different data formats and different instruments that usually need to be read into some kind of programming software or some kind of code that then visualize it. So for example, um, usually like in my PhD dissertation, basically I wrote Python code to take uh, NASA trim data and um, visualize that for different time frames and then analyze it. So half the battle is really just um, reading in data into a, a programming language. So um, an example, you can do any kind of animations are great, you know, GIFs or um, videos. Um, you can get maps like uh, 2D flat maps, you know, we're looking at the atmosphere. So we usually get like vertical profiles or you, or you kind of take a slice through the atmosphere or like look at things at different longitudes and latitudes. Um, NASA has a great tool called NASA Worldview. And that basically is um, a visualization of all that data I was talking about. So it's already mm -hmm. kind of been processed and um, put online. So um, you can look at current events from space. You can look at past events. Uh, I was looking in there. You can look at images from hurricanes. You can look at, um, you know, smoke from the Australian bushfires last year. You can look at dust storms, volcano, volcano eruptions, and basically just play around with the different time, time periods and different events and kind of zoom in and out in the world. And it's just a great um, visualization tool, but it is kind of complicated to translate <laughs> that data into visualizations. And that's pretty much what all, what a lot of scientists spend their time doing. And uh, Dr. Grunin, I wanted to ask you, is this available to everyone across the world or specifically here in the United States? It's a, uh, NASA data is available to everyone all over the world. Um, yes, we have a lot of users from China. A lot of researchers from China use NASA data. Um, the great thing about NASA data is it is global. And so we, we really do have a lot of global users of the data. Wonderful, that's great. That's so cool. And with all that data and all the data visualization, of course, you've seen way more than me on all the data visualization. <laughs> what are some samples that you personally have been very impressed or like, wow, that's a very interesting point of argument or what has been something that you've seen like, wow, that's a very interesting use of this data. I think I'm most intrigued by, and I also think it's one of the greatest challenges of this data is combining different data sets and different um, things into one graph or one animation. I think that's really interesting. Uh, when you first asked that question, the first thing that came to mind was there's this really cool visualization uh, animation, I think from 2017, where it shows uh, aerosols over the summer of 2017. It shows you all the like sea salt from the hurricanes and it shows you dust from the Sahara and, uh, you know, smoke from fires. And I just think that's really impressive when you can put all this different data from different sources into one graphic to give you like this really nice picture of what was going on. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> Wonderful. That that sounds very interesting. Like I've seen a lot of videos like that. I remember one that comes to mind, uh, the sort of video that how dust goes to the other side of the world. I thought it was a very, very interesting visualization. Mm-hmm. And something that um, now I'm thinking about that uh, you're talking about the data and monitoring the earth. And one example that really was very, very interesting that you said before, that it's like the vitals, like the stethoscope. What specific uses have you seen like are for the um have been used for monitoring the earth's health like what how are that satellites used to monitor the health in that specific sense mm -hmm. i have a couple examples um a lot of the nasa satellites measure um pollution or aerosols so that would kind of be like the earth breathing, you know, the lungs, like we, mm -hmm. NASA satellites look at, you know, carbon dioxide and, and greenhouse gases, but also the seasonality with the, the growing of the plants in the different seasons. Um, so kind of the lungs like that, um, you know, satellites can also look at things like the sea level rise and changes in salinity and changes in concentration of different things. So that would be maybe like you know, you go to the doctor and you get blood work done. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how the satellites are like, okay, let's see like how much the salinity of the ocean is changing, you know, with, with climate change. Um, also radiation. So kind of like the temperature, you know, um, what we call in earth science radiation budget. So how much sun, how much of the sun's energy is coming into the earth, being absorbed by the earth. And then being re-emitted back out. And um, this plays a big role into global warming and greenhouse gases. You know, if, if things are imbalanced, everything's good, things are out of balance, then things get hotter. Um, so really, you know, air pollution is a big thing. Um, monitoring greenhouse gases like methane and carbon dioxide and how much water vapor is in the air and um, radiation changes. And I wanted to mention, because you guys talk about um, sustainability, like you think, okay, why would radiation budget stuff, why should I care about radiation budget stuff, right? Um, but it's basically all solar energy. So mm -hmm. satellites that measure the radiation changes, scientists can process that to say, oh, here's where the sun is, you know, a good area, for example, that you could put a solar array um, for solar energy. So you can use these satellites to get data that are telling you how the earth is changing, but also how we could help, you know, in future and create more sustainable practices. That's so awesome. Oh my God. That's yeah. Especially <laughs> because um, I did my thesis on um, solar water desalination, solar powered desalination, because Ooh. we live we live on the desert, right? And of course, water scarcity it's a it's a huge issue here because we don't rely a lot on rain. We have the main river here, the Rio Grande, but it's not like uh, it's enough for a region. So we rely heavily on aquifers. Mm -hmm. And you know what's very interesting because I, I I'll, I'll take a look at the data to see if it's possible because it's a geopolitical situation here because we're right in the border and there's an aquifer that's being shared between two countries and three states <laughs> because we're mm -hmm. sharing with Mexico, we're sharing it with New Mexico and of course we're using here in Texas. And all of that might be very interesting to learn the data and of course um, all the contamination because it's it's always um, a uh, challenge here 
when you talk about environment, because you like if I look at the data, it's not that um, air pollution sees a border, right? We share right, the pollution. exactly. <laughs> yeah, we share the pollution here, so it's it's very interesting, and I really like whenever I try to discuss this with whoever it's that I'm talking. It's like it has to be evidence based. Like there's this there's the data. So if there's this evil that I was not aware, I usually use. I think I remember I used NOAA data for some of my. Mm-hmm. Um, for some of my projects, but I, I wasn't aware of this. And the best thing that I've learned a lot, uh, a lot recently is like you mentioned earlier, it's the interconnection between data sets. And that's something mm-hmm. that I, sh- I really need to do it because even though a lot of the times, um, you know, that famous saying, right, that correlation does not mean causation, right? Mm-hmm. Causation. But still sometimes if you work hard to find that cause, you may find it because you're missing like a third, um, chain or whatever something that it's actually costing the, the other one so it is related but you need to dig further and i think this uh data uh, from nasa would be would be really helpful to that wow i'm, I'm just yeah. i'm just seeing all the opportunities for, for this like even the coastal areas wow that's so freaking wow how elisa why do you never told me about this <laughs> you're the <laughs> you're the nasa expert <laughs> i'm just a mortal here yeah. i mean um I was aware that obviously our, our satellites and the con- you know the other people that are also giving off that information from their satellites, um, they do have like centers or database centers where they're sh- sharing this multitude of information with one another. I just wasn't aware that it was publicly available at, at the extent that it is currently. I think that's very impressive. Um, And I think that can definitely help people like Miguel who are working on their research, right? Um, That's the point to to use that data that's already available and make something of it. And, you know, with that, with that being said, um, how can civilians actively use NASA data uh, to become more informed or just in general to become more involved in the atmospheric science uh, for sustainable practices, since that is what we are hoping (laughs) we get to pursue. Yeah, I think, you know, in one of your earlier podcasts, you talked about one of the goals being education. And I think that civilians can educate themselves about NASA Earth science data. And we as NASA scientists can help facilitate that discussion. So a couple things I suggest are, of course, following NASA on Twitter. We <laughs> NASA has a lot of Twitter accounts. Um, I highly recommend at NASA Earth Data and at NASA Climate and at NASA Earth, which has really cool Earth pictures. Um, at NASA Climate has a really cool tagline in their bio. It says, rocket science isn't enough. We're climate scientists too. Oh, and that's so, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> a play on words that like, you know, NASA does a lot of uh, climate monitoring as well. So there are a lot of great resources online that NASA has. NASA has a climate.nasa.gov website. And what you can do is um, read blog articles. You can download posters and graphics and, you know, monitor the, the Twitter accounts where they'll usually give you a really nice graphic and nice summary and article. There's a cool app called earth. Now vital signs of the planet, which shows you pictures of, an earth with the data overlaid on it, which is a really cool visualization. Um, what? Yeah. Earth now. Yeah. I like the names. Earth that, now. 
that these applications are being called, you, you know? Yeah. Um, and more with, I want to mention that um, NASA also has an applied sciences division or, or branch, and they do a lot of work with communities over the globe. And so the applied sciences division definitely is more up the sustainability alley because for example, they'll work with farmers in Africa to use NASA data to help mm -hmm. um, ensure the health of their crops, or they'll work with communities in India and say, Hey, we've got this NASA air pollution data that can, you know, they can use on like local city level. So um, the NASA Applied Sciences is really cool. And then they also have NASA Disasters, which the NASA Disasters program, which works with like wildfires and hurricanes and stuff like that. And, and so these programs really work with how can you use NASA data for societal benefit? Definitely. Wow. I don't know. I don't know if I'm easy. No, I'm not easily amazed. I'm I'm amazed because it's so awesome. Everything that I just downloaded the app, the Earth Now, and I remember I I on 2016 I did an internship at Rice University, and mm -hmm. one of the first things that uh, people told me is that you need to visit the the NASA center over there at Houston. And and I've been a fan of NASA. Uh, I love NASA. Like everyone when it was little, right? You always get yes, the, the little, that little sticker at uh, the school. And of course you got um, thought about the astronauts and all of that. Mm -hmm. Now that you've worked at NASA and that you have that experience, can you tell me what is the coolest part of working for NASA? Yes. I like you. I also was was a NASA fan, wanted to be an astronaut and the first woman on <laughs> Mars when I was 14. That was my goal. Um, I think the coolest part is really sharing my love and passion for science with people, meeting new people, talking about science, doing the outreach um, in, at conferences or communities or you know schools when we were in person, um, encouraging and inspiring young people to pursue STEM fields, I think it's really cool to work for a place that's pushing boundaries and barriers. You know, we're, we're working on creating more diversity in STEM fields, um, being more inclusive. I think it's really cool that, um, you know, I work for NASA Earth Science, but I am tangentially like love Mars stuff, you know, so following <laughs> the Mars 2020 rover and the launches and, you know, what, what's happening with Artemis mission to to moon and then to the to mars so it's just exciting to be a part of history um i did have last year i worked on data documentation and data requirements for a upcoming mission and it just it sounds kind of boring and you know i was in the weeds of it but i stepped back from it and i said you know that instrument is going to be attached to the outside of the international space station and I was like, you know what, that's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going into space and my job, but I am helping, you know, contribute to some project that will go into space and collect data. Like so, a part of you is going to space, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, it's cool that I can contribute that way and um, help, you know, facilitate data that can help, you know, future scientists who want to study and monitor the earth. And that's and that's such an amazing point um, that you mentioned because that's one 
cool thing about sustainability is that it will be for future generations. It's mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's like a bitter bittersweet sensation, like feeling that you probably are not gonna see the fruits of your work because it's such a long term goal that sustainability that it's gonna be very helpful that you probably are not gonna see it, but that means that you're doing the right work, right? Because that means right. that it's sustainable. You're getting there and you're helping. Um, kids that are not being born yet going to different locations, going to um, other places in space. And I think that's so cool that who knows one day we might be in history books, like written down, like um, Dr. Danielle Grunin built this part of the spaceship. Or Oh, I would love that. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's, that's the exciting thing for me about sustainability, like helping people that I don't even know because they haven't even been born. Yeah. Creating and, that and, legacy to like yeah. help future generations and yeah that's really cool (laughs) and I definitely share that same passion um, when talking about NASA right because the advancement of human knowledge is overall just a goal and I feel like it's a healthy goal to have Um, and I thank you for for starting even as early in your career with with students right teaching like younger minds I know that you were first a physics teacher Uh and and in general, I think going from being a physics teacher to now your current role with NASA, what's that like? What what types of um, what's the difference that you've you've sensed um, in your personal being, like um, from from that transition? I think teaching was a good practice in communication and talking to people, and when you have to stand in front of students every day and talk about science and and stay enthusiastic, it kind of um, it's a challenge. So it gives you some good skills, uh, how to communicate complex science to a general audience. Like how do you get teenagers involved and interested in science and math? And my goal was to show them that it's applicable to their everyday lives. So I was kind of that annoying teacher that was reminding them that physics is all around them, you know, no matter what, um, what they were doing, if they were even walking to the cafeteria, you know, you know, go from point A to point B, you know, the shortest distance is a straight line. Like I was trying to show them that you can use math and physics to solve real world problems. So I just really wanted to get them interested in that. Um, And I think that I try and use that same enthusiasm in my current job at NASA when talking to other people, whether that be like you know, veteran scientists or, you know, kids who are like eight to 10 years old, you know, I want to convey some passion and excitement for NASA and earth science and say, you know, look how cool it is. We're monitoring weather and climate from space. Like we've got satellites that have been up there for 20 years monitoring, you know, air pollution, like there's some really cool stuff that can be done. So I really want to inspire people to do some cutting edge research, dream big. Um, and I really think like that being a teacher really prepared me for that communication and trying to get, you know, kids to be enthusiastic about math and science. And 
you are an inspiration now. <laughs> you, oh, thank I mean, you. Yeah, you are right now that inspiration. Don't don't even hesitate hesitate about that or like plan on being. You are like I'm being okay. inspired. <laughs> I'm being inspired right now. Like this is. Oh, thank you. You're such an amazing person working on this. I I love like talking to people that um are working on such different and diverse things like this, like you're doing, and of course monitoring the Earth's health. We only have one Earth, and that's very sure. important to just monitor it. Like we make sure that we take care of it, just like as we take care of our bodies, that we go to the general, phys- uh, what every six months, one year, that we go to the yep. physician to check what we have. We have our doctors. You are a NASA doctor, basically. You're, a, you're oh, the thank Earth you, doctor. thank you. <laughs> I should put and, that on my business card. <laughs> yeah, that's your tagline, mm-hmm. Earth doctor, because that's yeah. so cool. I mean, we cannot fix what we don't know what needs to be fixed, and that's 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 just wonderful. But um. It's it's been a, a wonderful time right now, and the time fly. Mm-hmm. It's it flying. did fly. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's such an interesting topic to talk about, and I think there's we can get in more in detail because, of course, oh, yeah. you may your whole career has been on that basically. So I know we can get more and more in detail, but we want to limit in general for us. It's, I'm talking about me now because if I get more detail, I might get lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I know that there's so many things that we can talk about that. But um, Dr. Grunin, in all of your knowledge and your wisdom <laughs> that you will we, you would like us to share with all of our listeners what books do you recommend to our listeners to read whether like related to monitoring earth's health or um, the atmospheric science in general what's what's a book or a couple of books whatever you you want to share with us would you recommend yeah there's um i have a couple book recommendations for like more of history on NASA stuff. So um, there are two good books on related to the NASA Langley Research Center. And that's The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, which talks about the Mercury astronauts and their kind of training. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hidden Figures by uh, Margaret, Lowe, Margaret Lee Shetterly. Um, and then another cool book, I did an internship at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I did two internships there. And I met the author of this book, um, Rise mm. of the Rocket Girls wow. by Nathalia Holt. And um, there are a couple of Mars or space related books I recommend. There's one, Packing for Mars by Mary Roach. And a book that inspired me when I was a teenager, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. And then I have two kind of coffee book, coffee table books. Uh-huh. Um, one is called View from Above, An Astronaut Photographs the World by Terry Vertz. It's actually a National Geographic book I just bought. And it's basically he, this astronaut took these amazing pictures from the International Space Station. And it's just, it's awe-inspiring, you know, to see the world from that that height and just how beautiful the world is. And then, of course, because we like... Uh, diversity in STEM. And I have the book right here, Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World by Rachel Ignotowski. And so those are a couple books that I really enjoy or have inspired me. Well, that's funny, Dr. Grunin. Um, I feel like we have a very like mind because I I know I've read two of those books. Oh, good. (laughs) And then Mary Roach is my favorite author. So yes. pretty cool that um, I'm not the only person who has like that same interest. Yay. <laughs> we, we're about that time now um, at, 
for this podcast. I, we just really want to thank you for taking the time, uh, especially throughout this evening, to talk to Miguel and I and share your experience at NASA and your current research. We would like to also wish you the best in your, um, the new transition that you're going into. Thank you. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. I know that our listeners are definitely going to have a new data center to start doing their research or continue their research in. Great. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts.